going on safari is quite different, I think, to going, for example, Barcelona and to see the palaces and the museums and stuff. You know, when you go on safari, you you yourself have an impact on the environment. I think people that are traveling on safari, if they don't, didn't know, but they really have a, a positive impact, but they can have a negative impact as well. And I think uh, people need to be aware of, of, of those negative impacts. Hi, I'm Dan Rubenstein, and this is The Grand Tourist. I've been a design journalist for nearly 20 years, and this is my personalized guided tour through the worlds of fashion, art, architecture, food, and travel, all the elements of a well-lived life. Before we start up Season 5 in September, welcome to the second episode of The Great Outdoors, sponsored by Janice AC, a leader in design-driven outdoor furniture. Today, we're packing our bags for what many travelers have on their bucket lists, the safari. For some, it's the most exotic adventure one can take. And for others, it's part of any healthy obsession with nature, relaxation, and, well, more nature. But in 2022, in the age of carbon offsets and a new awareness of the history and impacts of privilege, it's time to reconsider the safari and everything classically associated with it. Wealthy foreigners visiting countries that aren't, the cloud of illegal poaching, and most of all, disturbing the habitats of Africa that are increasingly under threat. That might sound bleak, but the safari is anything but passe. As you'll hear today, the pandemic has allowed the industry to double down on becoming a force for positive change. We'll speak with Matt Biden, CEO of the Royal Portfolio Group that includes the highly respected Royal Malawan Resort, Paula Franklin, co-founder of the group Travel is Better in Color on what to keep in mind for a responsible safari, and Simon Naylor, conservation manager at the Pinda Private Game Reserve, run by another highly respected outfit called And Beyond. But first, I check in with a travel expert second to none, and a voice that I trust 100%, Jeffries Blackerby. Jeffries was my former editor-in-chief at Departures Magazine and is now a consultant in the world of luxury travel. Before being my boss, he had a considerable career at magazines such as T Magazine at the New York Times, Vogue, Connie Nast Traveler, and Travel and Leisure. I caught up with Jeffries from his country home to chat about his pre-pandemic voyage on safari, surprisingly his first, to visit the gorillas of Rwanda. I'll ask him what took him so long, how to do it, and what it was like visiting some of the most incredible and most intimidating animals in the world. And you've covered travel for many years. And, you know, safari always seems to be this class of travel in its in and of itself. Tell me about how long you've been covering these and and how long you've been, you know, studying the ins and outs of this. Sure. Um, I probably edited my first safari story as a magazine editor in 2002. Mm. Uh, and I didn't actually take a safari until... 2019. <laughs> Partly because, uh, well, I was working and it's a real time commitment and it is an intimidating kind of trip. Did learning about safaris actually intimidate you? Probably so. I, I mean, you know, I had probably, uh, or the, the writer that I was editing or had assigned a story to had, you know, recommended these two week, three week trips that cost $20,000. And I just thought like, oh, well, that's just not going to be for me for a while, you know. Um, and uh, so it was an intimidating trip. And so it took me quite a while, but I had certainly learned a lot about it and had kind of set my sights on uh, what kind of trip I would want to do and how to combine kind of multiple elements of a safari, which, uh, you know, as I was sort of learning about it over the years, I realized is really probably the best way to do it and to kind of maximize your time and maximize your experience. And um, because it is a it is a big trip. Yeah. And when you're, you know, because the only thing, you know, safari is how it's defined is is essentially Africa's a really really big place. <laughs> is it something where when you're when you're wanting to think about yeah, I really want to do this, I've always wanted to do this. Should you be thinking about a country or a region first or really more thinking about the kind of experience you want to have first? I think you want to think about the kind of experience you want to have um and then within that there are 
good places to do it. And there are a lot of considerations. You know, some people really want the most remote, untouched, um, you know, you don't want to see a, another Jeep as long as you're out on a game drive, for example. Um, you know, they w- want that feeling of living very lightly on the land. And so you, you know, might choose a, a, a mobile tent kind of experience. And then there are other people who think, well, you know, and it might be their first time and maybe they're not such an advanced uh, advanced safari goer. And they think, well, actually, I'd really like an infinity pool uh, and really good food and uh, a nice lodge. And so, you know, you can have all of those. You can have both of those in the same trip. Um, and there are destinations and countries where that's just both of those things are easy, as easy as you want them to be, or as adventurous and intrepid as you want them to be. But I think it starts with, you know, what do you want to see? Um, because, of course, safari is geared almost entirely entirely around wildlife. So you want to choose, you know, do you want to see the great uh, migration? Do you want to do the gorilla experience? Do you want to see the big five? And the five being, for those who don't know, lion, leopard, rhino, elephant, and buffalo. So which one did you kind of adventure did you have? Yeah, my trip was actually both big five and gorillas. So I did, uh, as I was saying, I, I did a combo safari, which a lot of people do. Um, so a couple of different different countries, um, you know, kind of segmented my trip into two different kinds of experiences. I wrote about the gorillas. I didn't write about the big five portion of it. Um, and And that was a really great, way to do it what did the what did the guides kind of prep you for like obviously they must have said keep your hands inside the vehicle at all you times get kind of a thing. lot of you get a lot of prep um for a typical kind of classic safari game drive but those animals they are acclimated to seeing the jeeps um but beyond that they don't really see you humans they don't really look at you you can be actually very close to them yes you don't stick your hand out of the out of the jeep that's a pretty chill experience you don't have to have a lot of sort of you know instruction and training um the gorilla experience was definitely different you have a full kind of 45 minute explanation yeah you you have to sit and and listen um to the guide and he really explains all kinds of things you have to understand your posture um you know if a gorilla is comes close to you or uh, looks at you, you adopt a kind of passive stance where you just kind of slump and put your head down. Um, so there's all these sort of body language and cues because of course, gorillas are social and they're ancestors. And so, you know, they're, we're kind of speaking a uh, similar language with our, with our bodies. And so you have to understand how to, you know, communicate to them that you aren't there to hurt them or, or compete or challenge them or anything like that. Um, in addition to not uh, spreading any kind of disease, um, gorillas are susceptible to respiratory um, ailments that they can get from humans. So there's a lot of uh, kind of rules about protecting that aimed at protecting yourself and also protecting the gorillas. Um, and, uh, and yeah, you need them. They come in handy. You, I, I had to adopt that, <laughs> that we all had to adopt that slumpy kind of passive stance because the gorilla was kind of rolled in our direction. And was it like curious or did it kind of, it heard you and it kind of walked up to you or no, two of them were kind of tussling and playing. And, and again, you're, you know, it's mountainous. So you, we were on a slope and, and we, a group of us were standing at the um, sort of downward edge of a slope, lower edge of a slope. And these two gorillas were sort of playing and tussling above us. And one of them just sort of somersaulted in our direction and landed really within two feet, three feet of myself and another guy on the on the trip. And we just froze. And the gorilla kind of froze but then kind of raised up, looked at us, did a little chest beating, 
did a little kind of intimidation tactic and we all everybody just <laughs> slumped down you kind of you know um bend at your at your knees put your head down your shoulders down drape your arms down just everything about your body says don't look at me i'm not really here my heart was racing absolutely before we return to the program a word from our sponsor janice ac in the world of design an appreciation of the outdoors is more important in our lives than ever before enter janice ac as a leader in outdoor furniture for more than 40 years the brand combines unparalleled levels of craft and engineering to create works by the world's best designers and architects, from Andre Fu and Gambolini Shepard to Piero Lizzoni. But beyond the incredible products and designs, Janus AC provides a level of service and expertise that's always best in class. Designed by one of our former podcast guests, the one and only Philippe Stark, the new Serengeti collection was inspired by his time spent remotely in rural Portugal. There, among the sea, sand, and raw nature, he imagined this new series that's straight out of your wildest safari dreams. With clean lines, plush cushions, and rendered in fine sanded teak with visible peg joinery, Serengeti is a modern-day expression of classic campaign furniture. My favorite in this new line is the two-seater sofa with a canvas awning and cushions with beautiful piping. Tailored yet ready to withstand and harmonize with the nature that surrounds you, it's the perfect way to live out your own out-of-Africa experience. Robert Redford not included. Make an appointment at your local Janus AC showroom or visit JanusAC.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-E-T-C-I-E.com. For many, safaris are something remote and a world away. For the thousands of people who work at these resorts and reserves, it's the backdrop to their entire lives. My next guest is Matt Biden, the CEO of the Royal Portfolio Group. He joined his family's company a decade ago, which includes hotels and resorts in South Africa. Its Birkenhead House won Best Resort from Travel and Leisure this year, but their resort called Royal Malawan remains their pride and joy, where clients can visit the Greater Kruger National Park in the country's northeast near Mozambique. I wanted to ask Matt about what it's actually like to experience a safari at one of their resorts, what they're doing to stop poaching, and the realities of running a safari today. And so you, the Royal Portfolio has a lot of different properties uh, in Africa and different elements to it. Can you explain to the listener, you know, uh, what are the different elements of the business? Because it is, it is not, you know, it's quite large at this point. Yeah, I think it's, uh, you know, our journey very much started um turning our family homes into into hotels and that was uh, in 1999 and we opened in, in 2000 at, at Royal Malawan and it's still a very small family owned and, and run business. Uh, we currently have uh, six properties with uh, a few more in the pipeline um, and uh, you know the properties are dotted throughout South Africa and very much are in the iconic destinations that people want to go and see in South Africa. So you have this lovely circuit of South Africa um, in our properties. So we have the uh, Silo Hotel in Cape Town, which is one of our newest properties, a beautiful um, contemporary uh, building. It's a hundred year old building that's been made into a very contemporary um, sort of art hotel um, and incredible art and culture to explore in Cape Town. We have Birkenhead House in Hermanus, which is a small town uh, about two hours drive from Cape Town. And that gets a wonderful coastal experience. So you've got the whales that come there, shark cage diving, beautiful views of the ocean. We have Le Residence uh, in Franschhoek. We own our own wine estate in, in the Winelands. That's about an hour from Cape Town. We make our own wine, our own olive oil. Um, and it's a sort of very opulent property. Um, again, small, just 11 rooms and, and five uh, vineyard suites or villas. And then we have our three safari lodges at uh, Royal Malawan in the Greater Kruger. So you've got this very much a sort of a quintessential South African circuit um, that takes in the sort of iconic destinations in South Africa. And you really get to experience these incredible different experiences across across the country. And for uh, Royal Malawan, can you can you explain that property and, and the sort of the landscape there? We are up in the Greater Kruger region, which means that we are on a private 
privately owned farm, but we are open to the Kruger National Park, which is sort of the most famous, uh, important, one of the most important um, conservation areas in Africa. So, you know, it's around two and a half million hectares that, that we are open to. And the, the goal is to open it across um, the other countries as well uh, into um, Mozambique, which is already, and then into Zimbabwe, etc. And the goal is to get to around 6 million hectares. So it is a vast wilderness area. Um, and we are on private land and we have three safari lodges, one of which we've just opened uh, this month, in fact. Um, and yes, yeah, so you're on this private land, you are guided um, on safari um, we have incredible diversity of, of the big um, animals, the big five, as, as most people like to try and try and see, and then wonderful birds and other animals. And yeah, so that's that's sort of the setup at Romola One. And let's say you met someone in New York, uh, you're visiting New York and you met someone for dinner and uh, you're through a friend and they said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to come to Royal Malawan. I'm going to have my first ever safari experience. Um can you walk us through like you're like, OK, I'm going to set something up for you and kind of create an experience. Can can you walk uh, walk me through that experience? Sure. Firstly, I'd love to be there when they arrive, because to see to see the look on people's face when they when they see their first lion or their first elephant. And it, it's just magical. And it's a it's a wonderful thing to to behold. So I think, um, you know, first of all, when you're coming to South Africa, it's a slightly different um, experience because in South Africa, you you know, it's not just safari in the sense of, you know, a lot of the other African countries. So there are other experiences that you can add into your itinerary. Um, but mostly I would like guests to come and start with a safari experience. So you would fly into Johannesburg, you would transfer across and probably land in a light aircraft on a dirt strip on our, on our, on Royal Malawan. And you'd be met by your guide, um, your ranger, some people call them, and they'll be looking after you throughout your trip and taking you out on these uh, experiences in the bush. So you'd be transferred to the lodge, you would meet the team there, taken to your room, and you would have a, you know an hour or two to perhaps have lunch and get changed. And then then your safari starts, and you'll be um, taken on a on a game drive um, out in safari by your by your guide. We sit in open vehicles, so there are open vehicles, you know, no walls or anything on the side, no roof. You have a tracker that sits on the front, um, and, and his job is very much to work in tandem with, with the game ranger, and he's looking for tracks, he's looking for animals, and they communicate to each other. And then you have your guide that will be driving the vehicle, and he will you know, explain things to you and, and take you out in safari. Um, and then it's just this incredible experience of being out in an untouched wilderness, looking at these incredible animals and, and just experiencing this that really is life-changing and should be with you for the rest of your life. And when you, when you talk to someone who's a first-timer and they, you know, what, what's some common kind of feedback you get from them? Like, you know, it's kind of like when someone has never been to Italy before and then they come back and then they're like, they have very specific, they have very specific feedback that's, that tends to be, you know, uh, there's always some similarities. Like, is there any, what's a good kind of common feedback from a first timer on safari? Well, what we get a lot is people are surprised about how close you get to the animals and how the animals have largely ignore you. Um, and if the animal does ignore you, then, you know, we're doing our job correctly. So, it's very important that these animals are you know, the way that we view them and, you know, they're viewed from birth because we've been, you know, it's been a conservation area for, for decades that the animals are largely unaffected by us being there. And, you know, you'll be sitting in your safari vehicle and you could be surrounded by 70 elephant and they ignore you. And in some points, they're one or two meters away from the vehicle. Um, and and it's, it's, it's that closeness um, that people are surprised by. Um, and I think also the other thing that people are surprised, well, not surprised by, but I think an expectation is that a lot of people watch National Geographic and they watch a cheetah running in a Kenyan plain and eating a gazelle. And that's huge open plains, whereas in South Africa and, and the area we are, it's much thicker thorn felt. So you get closer to the animals um, and they're all sort of around you rather than sort of looking at a distance and, and, and watching a, a cheetah run at, you know, a few a few hundred meters away and so so in a sense because it's whatever these populations of animals they they kind of they're ignoring you because they've always been sort of taught to ignore you um or they they don't fear you because obviously there's no hunting on a 
reserve, like I guess, like that. Is yeah, that true? Yeah, very much so. So, the, so we have no hunting on 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 our reserve, um, and the animals have we we say habituated. So they 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 are aware of our existence, that they know that we're there, but they know that we are no threat, um, and. That is a continual process. So when a leopard has cubs, say, um, we will change the way that you will drive. So it will only be one vehicle in the sighting and you will respect the cub growing up in those early days so the mother doesn't feel threatened. And then what happens is the cub grows up knowing that the vehicle isn't a threat. You don't get in its way. You don't bother them. And then for the next 15 years, you've got a leopard that understands that you're not there to harm it and you largely are you know, insignificant. And then when they're going through those sort of early teen years, they become quite inquisitive. And that's when you get a cub going under the car or trying to bite the wheel or, or something like that. And <laughs> that's just an inquisitive phase that they'll go through. And then once they've passed that, then they, they tend to completely ignore you. Sounds adorable and frightening at the same time. Uh, um, and so obviously, I think for a lot of first timers, uh, or just people in general, they're there's always, especially now, uh, more of a hesitation about doing safari responsibly. And they just want to make sure that when they go on this adventure in various different ways that, that they are doing things responsibly. Can you explain how you guys do it? You know, how you guys approach this, this um, environmental and social responsibility um, within your portfolio and Royal Malawan especially? Sure. So I always say the greatest conservationists are the tourists because without tourists, there would be very little conservation. Um, the tourist dollars go a huge way to conserving all of our animals. So the national parks are, of course, important, but it's that sustainability is it the tourists coming back and the tourist dollars. So by getting tourists coming to stay with us, we are able to then conserve and look after the land and the community. So it's very much a two, it's, it, it, it's two parts. First of all, is conserving the land. And as I mentioned, the tourist dollars go a long way to do that. Um, we've introduced a conservation and community level, levy now, which is part of our rates. So that's a specific portion of money that we get that is used only for conservation and, and, and community. The, the next part, of course, is the, the community itself. So um, by <laughs> through employment, we're employing, uh, before COVID, we employed around eight people per room. So just by, again, staying in the lodge, you're creating a huge amount of employment, which is ongoing. And we always say aid doesn't work, creating jobs works, because by creating jobs, you, you, you look after people in perpetuity. And also in South Africa, one job goes along a lot way further than just one person. So we did a, an exercise, and I, I think it was around five or six people, up to eight people that, that each person that we employ supports. So the multiplier effect is very big. So does that affect as well? Um, and um, and I think that, you know, going and visiting places that do safaris responsibly doesn't take away from the, your experience. I think it can actually add to it. So, for instance, um, we talk about anti-poaching. Um, we have an incredible anti-poaching unit that has a, a great dog unit. Now, it's part of the guest experience. You can go, you can meet the dogs, you can do a tracking exercise with the dogs and understand how the anti-poaching works now again this is something that to me enhances your stay it doesn't take away from it um and we also have um the royal the royal portfolio foundation so we have a foundation that that is funded by by the hotels and we run numerous um projects in the local communities around all the hotels and it's something that's definitely not pushed to the guests but so many of our guests ask they want to go and visit the community so there are a lot of projects that the guests can go on we take them into the communities they can see what we are doing what is needed and then very often leave uh, very generous donations um and you know we've had uh, guests pay for classrooms at schools put in boreholes build vegetable gardens at at schools um, so there's num number of schools and creches and orphanages and and all kinds of other uh, clinics that that we support. Uh, for instance, the local clinic doesn't didn't have a doctor, so we pay for a doctor to go, a private doctor to go and work there one day a week. Um, so it's all these types of things that that guests can come and get involved in. And you know, as I said, it, it enhances your stay, and, it, and it's very important to 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 make sure that this that the safari industry thrives into the future. And, and you know, you, you mentioned the anti-poaching uh, unit. Are they there simply as deterrents, uh, or is it? Are they kind of active? I mean, is there? Are they actively 
catching every once in a while, you know, someone trying to to hunt. Yeah, so it's it's definitely very active. Um, and previously, in the, in the last decade, things have changed. Previously, there there would have been what we called meat poachers, and that would be someone you know from a community looking to to get meat, and that's largely disappeared. And now, in the last decade, our rhino have been hugely under threat. So it's the problem is rhino, is poaching of rhino specifically. Um, and the rhino populations have been decimated. So South Africa had sort of the only real um, sustainable uh, population of rhino. So that's why South Africa is then having so much rhino poaching was because we have we have all the rhino. So um, it is definitely a very much a, a current threat that's still going on. Um, and it is a large part of what we do is is to protect our rhino. Um, but it is something that the guests would not necessarily notice or be affected by because the poachers are going for rhino horn. They don't want to be detected. They don't want to be seen. They don't want to come in contact with, with any human because they can get caught. So it's very much a... Um, a very quiet thing that that can happen and and yeah and they they are after rhino horn oh gosh um and how many of this like anti-poaching I mean, how, how big is that team it, it's a big team and it it um, involves cooperation across government um organizations um sort of like our um intelligence and the police forces um and all of the reserves are work very well together we also um, a founder member of GKF, which is the Greater Cougar Environmental Protection Fund, and that is a um, my father's still on on the board of that, and that, that is an organisation of of all of the private reserves and the Central Kruger to work together, sharing information, uh, etc. Um, and yeah, we have numerous dogs, half a dozen dogs with with trained handlers, um, and the dogs are used uh, twofold. We have um, some dogs that are just for scent, so they would. Um, pick up scent and that's a bloodhound pincer mix so they got you know very very uh, acute sense of smell they would be used to to track uh, a person or ammunition or a rhino horn and then we have the belgian malinois which are scent attack dogs so when you got closer to something happening the the very friendly um bloodhound would be pulled off and the not so friendly belgian malinois would would hopefully finish the job and if there was one thing you wanted you know listeners of the show to kind of understand about, you know, Royal Portfolio and the business that you're in, in terms of, of Safari today in 2022, um, what would you want that one thing to be? I think that we, we treat every guest as an individual and what they want and what they, they, they so their desires will be met from what they want when they go on Safari. So very tailored experiences, um, incredible staff that will show you these amazing wildlife experiences, um, excellent cuisine, the best guides in Africa, and opportunity to to go and to see what we're doing in the community, to understand what we're doing with, with conservation, and just go on this amazing safari that you can't do anywhere else in the world. You know, there are beaches across the world. There are winelands across the world. But if you want to go on safari and you want to see a lion or you want to see an elephant, there are only a handful of countries in southern and east Africa where you can go and do that. And it's a it's a world unique thing that is an incredible experience that whether you're young or old, whether you've done it a hundred times or it's your first time, it's a it's an immersive experience that will really change change your life for the better. Before we return to the program, a word once again from our sponsor, Janus AC. This year, Janus AC is proud to partner with sister company and premier Italian furniture brand, Poltrona Frau, welcoming their first outdoor collection to the United States. Poltrona Frau's Boundless Living Collection is vibrant and sophisticated, transforming any space into an Italian playground. The collection includes spacious, modular sofas with woven backs, poolside sunbeds with striped fabric pulled right from the cliffs of Positano. And my personal favorite, the Solaria high-back chairs, made from a handmade rope weave that casts playful shadows, which become part of any design scheme. But the line goes way beyond seating to include portable lanterns, coffee tables, and a stunning slender-leg dining table made from teak with a surface covered in geometric glazed ceramic elements. Janus AC is the exclusive distributor of Poltrona Frau Boundless Living Collection in the United States and Mexico. To create your very own Italian garden privato style, 
Make an appointment at your local Janus AC showroom or visit JanusAC.com. That's J-A-N-U-S-E-T-C-I-E.com. My next guest is a longtime industry expert, co-founder of the group Travel is Better in Color that encourages diversity in travel journalism. With Paula's help, I wanted to understand her perspective on safaris and how travelers can be as responsible as they can to mitigate the omnipresent legacies of inequality, habitat disruption, and colonization. All that being said, she'll also give us some practical advice on what to wear and how not to embarrass yourself. Here's a hint, don't pretend to be a goodwill ambassador and leave your head-to-toe khaki gear at home. So you've been working in travel for for many years, and you have this uh, incredible organization, Travels Better in Color. Tell me a little bit about that. Um, it was uh, definitely born of the summer of 2020, um, where a group of five of us really felt the amplification of the lack of representation in travel media. And this was not a black and white issue, but a, you know, what is the perspective of somebody from Lagos when they go to India? It's not hectic to them. It's not crazy. Um, Whereas if someone from, you know, Chicago goes to India, they think that it is this very kind of insane, colorful place. And it just really showed the white lens from which we see travel. And we really wanted to talk about the different ways people travel, the different perspectives, and that's really where it came out. So we do hope that it is more global. Um, it is definitely racial, but we're, you know, we are trying to just really dissect what it means to travel from all walks of life. And, you know, if someone came to you and they said, you know, hey, I, I've been, I, I'm planning my travels and I'm thinking about going on safari, like what's the number one thing that you you tell people? Um, take a little time to do research. You know, there's, there's, I say there's a safari for every person. Um, you know, South Africa tends to be a little easier. You can take commercial flights very close to game reserves. Um, it's all nicely packaged. Uh, whereas if you go to some place like Tanzania, Rwanda, you're definitely more in the wilderness, which is, I will admit, my preference. Um, if we're going to go, we're going to go. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, really just take some time um, and look at the different different countries. What are you looking for? Do you want a couple of days safari matched with winelands? That would be South Africa. Or do you want, you know, a two, two-week trek into southern, you know, southern Kenya or somewhere? Um, so I think it's really do some research, spend some time. And what was your first experience like? What was it, what struck you when you think back to, you know, your time on safari? Like what what sort of sticks out in your mind as being the most impactful? So my first safari was at a reserve that's run by and beyond called Pinda. Um, and it was at a camp called Rock Lodge, which sort of hangs over the cliff, um, over, a, I'll say a gorge. And we were getting up in the morning to go to breakfast and I heard lions roaring. And I was like, there's absolutely a lion outside my room and I'm going to die and I can't leave. <clears throat> and I called security and they came laughing and they were like, the lions are like 15 kilometers down that way. But the sound, I don't think I realized the, you know, this, this ability that a male lion has to really make noise and call out their ter- their territory. So I learned quickly. It was really just the fact that you really are in that animals, like you are in their house. And if you are with a you know a, a reputable operator, which pretty much all of them are, you you are there to respect the animals, to get out of their way. Um, and it really, I mean, it really is wild. I think you know some some people know this going in. I did not. Um, it is you know you are in it. You are in the animal's house, and you're just you're visiting and and observing. All tourism has an omnipresent cloud of game hunting, socioeconomic imbalance. So. As an average person, how can travelers address these issues? Oh, there are a few. So I think when you, when you talk about people um, and, um, you know, the different socioeconomic levels that you are going to see in Africa, but I think in sub-Saharan Africa particularly, um, but I think also the realization that these are cities and people people live there and they're, you know, Nairobi has a tech boom and Johannesburg is an artist hub. So it, it is not sort of poor people living in huts and animals. Um, Africa has these amazing thriving cities. I always recommend people stay. You know, it's, you know, Kigali might not be a city that you would travel to just to go to Kigali, but it is absolutely worth the three or four days before you go on a gorilla check. And really, you know, sort of 
free your mind of all these all these you know preconceived notions of what what Africa is um, and really you know spend some time with people. I think a general guideline that I try to tell people when we talk about responsible travel, if you wouldn't do it in Europe or in the US, don't do it in in Africa or really in any developing nation. Um, there's no real reason for you to go visit a school. There's no reason for you to visit an orphanage, go walk through a poor city to see how poor part of town or a slum to see how people live. Um, you know, if you want to donate money and you want to make an impact, I would argue you can do that without infringing on on people's lives. Um, you know, there are a few there are a few exceptions. Um, you know, in in South Africa, they'll do historic tours around Soweto. Um, you know, that really center around museums and places. So I think it's, I don't mean to make this an absolute, but I would just think about whether or not you need to walk in on a third grade classroom during your very expensive um, safari. Uh, right. There's only one Angelina Jolie. Yeah. And you're not. It, you know, right? and, and you or, know, if you sent money ahead of time and you built a bathroom or you installed Wi-Fi and computers and you made a, you built the school, absolutely go visit it. Um, <laughs> if, if it is, you know, if it's something where you've been offered this as your afternoon activity, um, I would just take pause and think about, you know, what benefit to the to this community um you know what ex- what benefit exists for them by you disrupting um the elementary school and when it comes to like finding these like reputable i mean obviously if something is like super well known of course you know uh, that sort of takes care of itself usually but is there are there any organizations or any way uh that someone should look out for for you know a tour operator to be a part of or any kind of, you know, anything like that, that someone can say, okay, they're a member of the, like you wouldn't travel, like with the small, great small hotels of the world kind of thing. Like, is there anything like that for Safari that you can point to? Yeah. So Safari is still very much built in the travel agent, travel advisor model. So if you are going for the first time, you most likely need to hire a professional to help you. Um, It is quite complicated. um, And I don't know that I'd really recommend someone trying to plan out their, you know, their Kenya vacation using Google. Um, I would really look at, you know, on that travel operator on that large company's page, go ahead and, uh, you know, look at their sustainability statement. And does it sound like greenwashing or do they have some concrete numbers? I think that's a good way to start. Most of your larger chains, um, I don't want to call them a chain, well, most of your larger safari groups, wilderness and beyond, Singita, Asilia, African bush camps, um, they are all doing great work. And it is, it's, it's a bit of, you know, best practices when you talk about um, you know, when you talk about safari lodges, that they're all they're all going to be built in somewhat of a sustainable way. Um, I argue for if you can find lodges that are African or community owned, that is a huge, um, a huge plus. Um, it is rare, I will say. Um, at the African bush camps is the only um, large safari uh, group that is owned by a black African tourism the way that it exists now doesn't always leave the tourism dollars in country so i think even if it's not necessarily a black african-owned property asking a little bit of like you know what is this business model how much of this money is staying on the continent and how much is is not i think that is um that is a really important one and i think a lot of it is also what kind of safari do you want if you're talking about the serengeti the masai mara kruger national park these large parks that you know everyone has heard of um those are national parks those are open that means people can drive through in their regular cars so they are much more um you are much more likely to see other people other vehicles have many vehicles on an interesting sighting but you're also in the serengeti and it absolutely is like the acacia trees and the grasslands and the lone leopard and all of those you know what safari dreams are made of um, when you go to a place like Botswana, it's mostly private concession. So you are by yourself, maybe another vehicle or two. You're also going to pay for that privilege. So I think a lot of it is, you know, what do you want in your safari? But I would definitely, you know, I think a lot of it just goes back to asking questions of of these lodges. You know, who owns it? Who is benefiting? Are you promoting employees from this from the country in which you operate? 
you know, are they being, um, you know, given managerial opportunities, you know, questions like that. Um, I think it's also really important to ask questions. So even if you end up, you know, wherever you end up, if tour operators are used to, or lodge companies are used to having to feel these questions, like, where does my money end up? Um, it's going to start, you know, they're going to start uh, shifting the way that they do business too. And would you say that there is a, has been a shift in, in the past, you know, five years or so uh, in terms of how these companies are thinking of themselves in a, in a responsibility way beyond both, both in terms of economics uh, and sustainability and, and the environment? Is this like, is the industry, you know, responding to not? Um, they're responding because no one went on safari. Not no one. Very few people went, to, went on safari during COVID. So just, you know, getting to, you know, getting around and, and travel bans and all the joy that was um, and still is, um, you know, COVID travel restrictions. Um, a lot of companies had to pivot and ask Africans to come. And that's something that they never did. Safari was very much for expats. And I think that has ripple effects into conservation. If you live adjacent, if you, you know, or live in a rural African community adjacent to a national park and you can't afford to see that elephant or those lions, what motivation do you have to conserve it? Apart from maybe a tourist coming and like watching your children in school every now and then, what incentive have they been given outside of jobs for some people. So I think, you know, really having to break down those walls, you know, and I mentioned African cities, you know, you absolutely have Kenyans who can afford to go on safari and South Africans, you know, people from West Africa. Um, but a lot of that is in crunchy rates. So if you're guaranteeing your rates in dollars, that, you know, all of a sudden it becomes prohibitive. And what would you, what would you, when someone is, you know, about to they're about to head out the door. They're fully packed. They're ready to go. Like, what is the number one thing, piece of advice that you would tell somebody as they as they get on the plane? I mean, I guess the day before, you don't need a full safari kit. You do not need to be decked out in khaki vests full of pockets. You know, you don't want to wear shiny things. You do, you know you 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 know, and depending on your you know your Instagram you know, your, your desire for, for good shots for, for Instagram. Um, but I think some people stress out and they just sort of picture themselves needing all this gear. And it's not, not, not quite that way. Don't wear blue or black because you will um, attract flies, which is not fun. Oh, I've never heard that. It's, it's, it is an important one. So if you have any blue or black in your luggage, get rid of it immediately. Um, I also think, um, it doesn't have to be a once in a lifetime trip and try to slow down. You know, I think, you know, people are, you know, they get there, they want to, they want to see all the animals. They want to check off the big five. They want to see that lion kill, but really just sort of take a beat, especially when you're there, like stop, listen, hear the sounds. There's so much going on, bugs and birds and little animals and big animals. And it, it is a really fascinating place to be in the African bush. And I think, you know, you see something as cool as an elephant and everyone has their cameras out. They probably bought a camera they don't know how to use just because they went on safari. But it is take a minute and watch the elephants interacting. You know, watch the 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 lioness, watch her cubs and the and the zebra at the same time. You know, really, you know, be in the moment. Um, because I've you see a lot of people on their first time that are just really obsessed with that nature shot or getting their their big checklist. You know, if you don't see a leopard, it's fine. You you saw a lot of, of really cool things. And also, you're not a wildlife photographer. <laughs> All of those amazing shots that we see was a professional probably sleeping under a bush for two weeks to get the shot. So just, you know, focus on being there. My last guest is Simon Naylor, conservation manager at the Pinda Private Game Reserve, run by luxury travel company and beyond. Simon is someone on the front lines of keeping these habitats healthy and safe for both animals and humans, and has a storied career on everything from rescuing the rare pangolin to keeping poachers from killing rhinos. And if you want to follow an Instagram account that's truly original, look no further than his. I caught up with Simon from the reserve. Yeah, I mean, Pinda Private Game Reserve is a is a reserve that's um, you know in in South Africa, obviously in in the province of KwaZulu Natal, and I'm the conservation manager for for the game reserve. Um, and yeah, it encompasses basically all the 
the sort of conservation work that happens here. Um, it includes the wildlife management on the on the reserve. The reserve is is thirty thousand hectares, which is about three hundred square kilometers. Don't ask me what that wow. is in acres uh, for your American audience. <laughs> it's big, but um, yeah, it's it's, big. it's a pretty large uh, privately owned reserve in South Africa, and yeah, I manage pretty much all the the, the wildlife related work here. You know, the security, um, you know, the fences, you know, the research, the monitoring, all the land management that we do here. Uh, I'm very involved in the community work as well that, that takes place. Um, and then obviously with working for and beyond, you know, we have a number of tourism operations and lodges, et cetera. And I'm, I'm, I'm not overall responsible for that. Um, but I, I work very closely with a team that manage the tourism side of, of, um, of Pinda. And, you know, as someone in the business, like what would you say makes Pinda stand out, you know, a, as a, as a as a place to go on safari, but also as just a reserve, like what makes yours uh, unique? Um, yeah, I mean it's a good question because there are just so many places to go on safari in Africa, and uh, uh, I would say Pinda is unique from a point. You know, not only do we have incredible wildlife and and diversity, but I would say the story of Pinda is is really really special. Um, you know, where it's come from is is really unique, and and um, you know, it was one of the first private reserves in South Africa, really. Uh, back then, 30 years ago, there wasn't such a thing as private game reserves in South Africa. You know, you could, you could, there was, you know, state parks, national parks that you could go visit as a tourist. There was also places where you could go hunting, you know, on, on private, private farms. Um, but there wasn't really, uh, to my knowledge, many places where you could go on safari in a private reserve, you know, and get a really exceptional game drive experience, you know, guided by a, uh, you know, really good trained, um, informative guide and stay in a luxury, luxury room and, and, and have good food and wine and, and, and sort of be catered for in that way. There, there, there was, you know, Mala Mala and Londolozi in those places, but they were already established and in, you know, um, you know, part of, part of, Kruger National Park, uh, not 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 in the early days, but they became part of the Kruger National Park. But but Pinda was very unique in that it was created basically from nothing. Um, you know, there was farmland here. There was there was cattle. There was hunting. Uh, there was even crops like cotton and sarsal and and pineapples. And so it was a, a a vision that was created by a number of individuals and sort of born out of the the belief that. Um, you know, land could be turned back to what it was hundreds of years ago, and and wildlife could be protected, uh, uh, animals could be brought back, and the community, most importantly, could benefit. You know, from employment and direct, um, you know, investment in in healthcare and 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 education. And so, I think that's what really makes Pinda special is that the 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 you know it. It was one of the first to to have this sort of vision of of conservation through tourism uh, and community benefit and ownership and and to this day, thirty years later, it, that model is is still true and and it's it's been a massive success. And I guess I guess everyone that comes here gets to know that story, you know. So people that come and visit, they they know that they are making a difference in that way, you know. I think. Uh, tour, you know, tourism safaris rely so much on tourism everywhere, and and everyone has a similar model and, and story now. But but I think Pindu is unique because it was it was one of the first, and um, and it has succeeded. And you know, speaking of social media, it was great to see the nitty gritty on your Instagram and a lot of the little individual activities that you that you're involved in. Uh, there's some amazing pictures of of working with rhinos and their horns, where you have to kind of put a tracker, uh, like an electronic tracker, like inside a horn of one of the rhinos. Can you explain a little bit about that and, and about the rhino population and, yeah. and, and how's that going? Yeah. Look, I mean, with, with, with a number of species, um, in fact, Pinda's, Pinda's quite intensively managed, um, as far as sort of parks go. And that's purely because we, we relatively small, you know, in terms of, of a of a of a natural area, and um, so some species we will manage quite intensively, and we obviously monitor them them intensively because, you know, you it's really really important to to sort of understand as much 
as possible about what's going on. So we, you know, we measure rainfall, we we even measure grass, uh, we measure tree abundance, we measure certain species. Um, you know, that's on the vegetation side. Um, we do fixed point photography on, you know, just to see change. Um, we do remote sensing and all these things, and all of that feeds into you know, the management and, and how we want to manage the park. And so so coming back to rhinos, you know, rhinos is one of the, the animals that, you know, they, they're big animals. We've got black and white rhinos and they 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 mega herbivores. So they, they have this ability to change the landscape and, and, and the habitat quite drastically. And so we, we, we manage them or we monitor them very, very closely. Um, and we do it for these days, primarily for security and for security reasons, you know, to have a large population of, of white rhino and black rhino, we've really got to know what they're doing, you know. Um, so we, we monitor white rhino um, in a number of ways. Um, you know, we, we want to know how many there are, you know, how well they're breeding, what's the growth rate, how many males we have, how many females, is there any signs of inbreeding? Um, you know, what are they eating? Are they eating too, you know, what sort of impact are they having on, on the vegetation and, and, and each other? So we do that. One of the, the tracking devices we use, we, we, we can put uh, devices into the horns. Um, well, we used to when they had horns on, or we can put them around the ankles, you know, which we, we don't do very often. Um, the, the, the best way that we do that is is by marking their ears. We notch their ears. We put slight um we call them notches in the in the ears and that that's permanent and so that gives them a unique id and so our teams our monitoring teams if they go out and they see those individuals they know who they are and they record that and our ecologist uh who's the sort of repository of all this information she collects it all stores it and analyzes it and then spits out reports to us when we want um it's perfect but um yeah, so the devices that we we used to put in the horns would allow us to sort of find them and track them and monitor them. Um, you know, some of them are satellite devices, um, but we 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 don't do that anymore because most of our rhinos actually don't have horns anymore. Um, we, you know, we've had to trim them and keep them short uh, against rhino poaching. Um, so, yeah, we do. Oh, we, so you're you're basically removing the horns so that there's no reason to to hunt them well we we try and reduce the incentive um for people to come and shoot them um and also try and sort of take the reward away um but keep the risk there as well through 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 good security so um yeah that's one of the things that we do but to to come back to your question on the devices in the horns i mean we we do a lot of monitoring here and you know we collar elephants we put tags on pangolins um occasionally we'll put you know, devices on, on, on lions and cheetahs if we want to monitor them for a specific reason. But we don't put too many devices on animals. We try and keep it as natural as possible and we'll use other methods to to monitor animals like spot patterns on lions and cheetahs and leopards. And, you know, we, we do a lot of camera trapping here as well. And um, it's really just the elephants mostly that have the collars on their, around their necks, um, you know, for, for monitoring purposes. In terms of the conservation efforts and the sustainability from a social, uh, you know, point of view, what do you do, and and what does you know the reserve do to kind of stay in harmony with these local communities? To uh, aside from you know employment, for example, you know we've got we've got a foundation called the Africa Foundation, whose sort of kind of sole mandate is, um, you know, is is engaging with communities and and de- helping develop. Um, you know, and, and, and improve livelihoods in, in communities. And, and the, 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 the direct link is obviously to, to and beyond and where we operate in Pinda, for example, it's slightly different to the rest of and beyond because, you know, it's, it's a, it's a wildlife reserve that, that is owned and managed mostly by, well, it's managed by Pinda, but it's, it's not all entirely owned by, by and beyond. Um, And I think the key with the communities around here is that a lot of them, uh, a lot of their livelihood is linked to the park and to the well, you know, the welfare, well, the, the, the lodges and the tourism and, and, and things like that. So um, it's not just employment. Um, there's, there's two communities in particular that now own land within the, the park. Um, this was, this was, this deal was done 
um, it's almost 15 years ago now, um, where land was handed back to them. They used to, we're talking 100 years ago now, the people from this community, the you know, the descendants of the people now um, used to live on land here. And so South Africa went through, and it's still going through a process of redistribution of, of land to previous, you know, occupants. And that took place here. And so um, that was quite unique uh, and still is, you know, where you've got communities and claimant communities owning land uh, in, in, in the reserve. And not just that, now they, they, they've brought in other land that they owned into the park, and that's how the park has expanded. So, so they receive direct benefits from the tourism and from the running of the park. And, um, and, and in one case, one of, the, one of the communities is now just about to open a, a lodge in Pinda. It's not being managed by and beyond, but uh, it will be their lodge managed by them um, and obviously seeing the benefits of, of the park itself. So, so they will get benefits that way, not just through employment, but through, you know, having a business, uh, tourism business in the park. Um, that's just the one, the one thing, you know, and obviously employment is really, really crucial. Uh, we employ a lot of people from the surrounding communities. In fact, you know, our goal is to have, you know, m as many people as possible employed locally. Um, and, and, you know, this is a really, really impoverished area of South Africa. And, well, it's very typical of Africa. You've probably got about 80 to 90% unemployment, um, you know, around here. Um, there's very little industry. There's maybe a little bit of agriculture. But, um, you know, so each person employed, it might not, you know, we employ, I think in total in the whole reserve, we probably employ about 500, 500 600 people directly. Um but but each one of those people will probably have about 10 or 15 dependents. Um, and so that's a really large number of people depending on that direct employment. There's a lot of indirect employment as well. I mean, there's companies that, that take refuse. Um, there's companies that do refrigeration. You know, there's builders. All, you know, there's... Um, we, we employ people to come and do bush clearing and to remove alien plants. I mean, there's hundreds of people that come in every day to do that. Um, so if you add all of that up, um, you know, just the shops, we, 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 we purchase as much as we can locally as well. So there's a lot of shops and in um, businesses that are almost completely dependent on Pinder. Um, you know, we're talking hundreds of millions of rand uh, dollars um, as as a sort of economic economic generation potential local uh, local industry, so that that's a, just a microcosm of 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 you know the 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 benefits that the people around and not just the people but the the economy around us um, benefit from. So that's why coming back to COVID, you know when when you have to close all these lodges, it it really has a massive impact and compounding impact on the local economy and. Um, so when when things pick up and we you know we we are picking up again uh, beds are you know people are coming starting to travel again it it really has a huge positive spin off to to the entire All right and this is my last question and you know feel free to think about it a little bit uh in your you know about 30 years of experience I think 25 years 30 years um what is the most incredible thing you've ever seen on safari the most recent thing, uh, and and a, truly, truly a highlight for me, um, and and having been involved in in the lead up to it, is to see pangolins um, back here in in Pinda. You know, um, they went extinct, locally extinct, many many years ago. No one really knows. You know, um, there was sightings. I don't know, fifty years ago, and um, you know, we were just fortunate to to connect with the right people and. And and make it happen where we could bring rescued pangolins back to back to Pinda and not just Pinda but to this this area of Zululand, uh, South Africa. Um, I would say a highlight really, really for me has was you know was seeing pangolins for the first time, and and but not just that, but but seeing them sort of released on 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 Pinda. You know, and I, I've got a very special. Pinda has a very special is a bit very special place for me because I've invested just so much time and energy and and effort into to looking after it. But to see pangolins 
you know, released, walk out the box, um, you know, scratch in the earth, take their first, you know, ants and then wander off. Um, and then subsequently bringing more and more and more. And, you know, we've really got a viable population now and they're dispersing into some of the other parks and, and another park nearby has done the same. And, and, and that was our goal, you know, is to, is to bring back a species that, you know, we as human, human beings removed, um, and not just a species, any species, but because we've brought many species back to Pinda, but I would say these are, this is the most special, you know, and, um, and they really are under threat at the moment. And yeah, we've, 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 we've really succeeded in this project and there's been lots of role players in it, but, but having played a part in that and, and making it happen and, 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 uh, and seeing that from, you know, in the beginning, that was really, really special for me. Uh, and so people that come to Pindanar have a good chance of seeing pangolins, which, um, you know, which they, they never could before. Um, yeah. They, so the, I would say that to answer your question, there's been many, but that, that, probably is right up there at the top of top of the par. Thank you once again to Janice AC for sponsoring this episode. And a heartfelt thanks to my guests, Rebecca, Matt, Simon, and Jeffries. The editor of The Grand Tourist is Stan Hall. To keep this going, please follow me on Instagram at Dan Rubenstein to learn more. And sign up with your email for updates at thegrandtourist.net. And don't forget to follow The Grand Tourist on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen, and leave us a rating or comment. Every little bit helps. Till next time.